Make Walters your spot for this NFL season. All indoor TVs are preset and are first come, first serve. They're proud to show every NFL game every week. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Is breaking balls hit in the air to center field, not deep. Freelick coming on. He's going to make the catch. Abrams tags. He's coming home. The throw is offline, and it hits Abrams as he comes in standing to score. On a sacrifice fly and a run batted in for Joey Manessis, his team leading 81st of the year. And the Nationals have regained the lead here in the top of the 11th inning. It's Washington 2 and Milwaukee 1. Chavis in front of the runner, Adamas at first. They're not worried about him. Here's the pitch. Swing to grounder. Great play. Fair ball. Chavis has it. Gets the out at first. Throws home, and Contreras caught in a rundown. Moving him back toward third is Mellis. He tags him out. It's a double play, and it's a curly W in the books. On a base running mistake by the Brewers there, Contreras stopped. Maybe he thought the ball was initially foul. But Chavis makes an outstanding play at first, steps on first for the out, throws home, and then Millis runs Contreras back toward third, and he had nowhere to go because the other runner had already gone around to third Adamas. So third base was taken away from him. And so he just slowed up, and Millis tags him out, and the Nationals are on the field to celebrate a victory here at American Family Field in Milwaukee. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Nat Chat Podcast. As you can hear, this is not Al Galdi. I'm Tim Showers, filling in for Al, giving him the day off to focus on the Commanders game in Denver. If you want a recap of that, please be sure to check out the Al Galdi Podcast available on all the usual platforms. I'm joined live from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mark Zuckerman after the Nats won 2-1 to one at what I will always refer to as Miller Park, regardless of what the current sponsorship is. Nats and their five-game skid on the road trip. Win number 66 of the season, a 2-1 to victory. Great play by Michael Chavis to end the game. We're going to get into all of that. There are 12 games to go. Mark, before we get into it, we are recording on an NFL Sunday. It is September, after all, where the two sports overlap for a handful of weekends. What is the vibe like in Milwaukee on a September day where it's a meaningful game for the Brewers and the Packers have a week two matchup at one o'clock Eastern noon kickoff in Milwaukee. Yeah. So before the game, I was actually walking the concourse and it was amazing. All the TVs are on the Packers game and people are huddled around them watching it very closely. And there's a point in the Nats Brewers game where there was 
kind of a, a murmur and some frustration audible from the fans. And it didn't really match up with whatever was happening in the ball game. And I realized, oh, it's because the Packers just lost. So uh, as you know, this is a very rabid sports town and state. And this was a big day for both of their big teams and um, both of them lost close games. So made for an interesting environment to say the least. And um, I think fans are probably more upset about the football loss and the baseball loss, but there was legitimate frustration over the way this game went for the Brewers from their fans because both teams had countless opportunities to win it in late innings. And it was just a matter of can anybody convert with a runner in scoring position? The Brewers could not, and the Nats finally did in the 11th. Brewers have a healthy lead, you know, roughly six games with 12 games to go. However, they're a flawed roster, flawed lineup. We're going to get into that in a little bit, and Mark sort of alluded to that. So he saw that firsthand this weekend while in Milwaukee. I want to begin with the end of the game, bottom of the 11th. Nats lead 2-1. to one. Joey Manessis had a sack fly to break the tie. Bottom of the 11th, Robert Garcia's on the mound. Bases loaded, one out. Michael Chavis is at first base, sort of a throwback to pre-DH days where we had in-game substitutions. Michael Chavis, ninth inning, pinch runner for Dom Smith. So he's there at first, makes a great play, tags first base on a quick line drive, throws home Drew Millis, tags out the runner in between third base and home because there was no force out. There's a lot there. You heard the highlight off the top. But Mark, give me your thought process during that moment, that situation. Base is loaded with the tying run at third, go ahead, run at second. Well, all right, a couple things here to, to set it all up. You described why Chavis was in the game. It's 100% the right call for him to pinch run for Dom Smith, who's one of their slowest runners. You got to take that shot when you have it. Now, it didn't make a difference there because they didn't get the run home. The domino effect of it, of course, is now Chavis is your first baseman and your cleanup hitter, actually. And if not for Manessis getting the runner home in the top 11th, Chavis is going to be up with two outs and the runner on third. Now, he struck out. It didn't matter because they'd already scored the run. But he admitted like he was pretty upset at the strikeout. And he said it would be easy to take the frustration of that at bat. And this is a guy who doesn't get a lot of at bats and, let's be honest, has really not done much for them offensively this year. It'd be easy for him to take that frustration now out into the field with him in the bottom of the 11th. And to his credit, he did not. And when I asked him for kind of a blow-by-blow blow of that play – and what goes through his mind each step of the way. He gave an incredibly detailed answer that I found fascinating. And I think for fans out there, we don't always fully appreciate how much major league ball players think, or at least some of them do. And Michael Chavis is one of them. Okay, the situation is first and third with one out. He's playing first base. And he said he had some time before the at-bat to, in his mind, play out the different scenarios. And you do this as a little leaguer. You say, well, if the ball's hit to me, what am I going to do with it? Well, he took it a step farther and thought out each different scenario if the ball was hit to him and specifically in different directions. And he even said, he claimed to us that he thought, okay, if I have to make a diving play to my right, well, then I'm going to throw it to second and get that runner. If, however, I make a diving play to my left, well, in that case, I'm going to step on the base and I'm going to fire to the plate and try to get him that way. And sure enough, that's exactly the way that it played out. And it's a case of visualizing in advance what might happen, and then having it come to fruition, it's like this perfect convergence. And for him, you could see what it meant to him. The team celebrated it. And it's just a reminder that it's not always just athletic ability. It's not always being smart in that moment and knowing what to do, but actually having the foresight in advance to play it out in your mind of, if this happens, I'm going to do this. And it worked to perfection. 
Michael Chavis impresses me from a standpoint of just being a crafty player. After all, on talent alone, he's not going to be on big league rosters moving forward. But he seems like a guy who knows his role, how to fit in. High IQ player. Even brought a popcorn machine to the clubhouse this year, which I know sounds like a small thing, but on a day-to-day basis, that little thing adds up, showing someone who wants to be a teammate. Mark, what does Michael Chavis mean to the Nats come October 2nd? Season's over. Where does he fit in? Yeah, it's a good question. We talked about you know the lack of production. He really hasn't done much. He hasn't played a whole lot as the last guy on the bench. Now, he's been on the roster the entire season and barely has 100 plate appearances, but they have used him as their pinch runner. They like his versatility to play multiple positions. Let's remember, he's not really a natural first baseman. He's a middle infielder, sometimes third baseman, but he has played some first base and he played it brilliantly on that last play. Now, he's arbitration eligible, so he's not a free agent at the end of the year. If they want to bring him back, they can. They might cost him a little bit, uh, not a, a ton, but you know, one to $2 million to bring him back. You would like to think that as the team gets better, they can use that spot on somebody who contributes a little bit more, a more productive utility infielder. But I think we've seen them give Jake Alou a shot here in September, and there have been some nice moments, but to be honest, not a whole lot of them. And I feel like after his first week or so where he was hitting and driving in runs, it's been less so lately. So I think it's an interesting question. Under normal circumstances, I think Chavis would be an obvious candidate to be non-tendered this winter. And they look to upgrade there, whether it's from within or from the outside. But I can tell you, they do love him in the clubhouse. He brings energy. He obviously is a smart player who can do a lot of different things for you. And maybe in a different scenario, we would see those things come up more often to make a difference. It's just this year on a bad team, there have really only been a handful of games that he's had any kind of impact on. Now, fortunately, he had a big impact on this one and helped him win a game. There have not been a lot of those, though, this year. Luis Garcia homeward for the second straight day. Looking it up quickly, I believe that's the first time in his career he's done so at the big league level, but everyone else could double-check my math on that one. Speaking of the offense, though, Mark, you've now seen the Brewers three times this weekend, but six times in the past two months. So you've gotten a fresh look at them. I follow the Brewers closely. My dad's a fan of them, so I know a lot about them. They're 19 games above 500. they They're likely going to win the division by a healthy margin. They have fantastic starting pitching, but their offense leaves a lot to be desired, and they did not beef up at the trade deadline. If you look at the Nats' offensive statistics and you look at the Brewers' offensive statistics – Things are very, very similar. And if you just sort of watch these games against each other, you'll notice they're pretty close games. Mark, what do you think about the Nats offense as it relates to a team that's probably going to be winning a division within the next week? Well, I think if the Nats had the Brewers pitching, they'd be in great shape right now, but they don't have anything close to the Brewers pitching. I love their pitching. It is the reason that in spite of all that, I think you do still give them a chance come October. Now, I've felt that way for a few years about them. They have been to the playoffs several times what made it to game seven of the LCS a few years back in 2018. I think with a better lineup, that was like peak Christian Yelich and uh, some other guys that were really good that got into the brink of the World Series. They don't have that right now. You stack them up against the Braves or the Dodgers. Are they going to be able to outpitch those teams and score enough to win games? Maybe. It would be really low scoring. They would need to pull it all together. But yeah, I mean, you watch them. Fans here have a right to be frustrated because that game was there for them to win in walk-off fashion in the ninth, in the 10th, and again in the 11th, and they could not come through. And really over the weekend, it was what Mark Canna's grand slam off Finnegan on Saturday night. 
a couple of homers the night before that, but they did not do much else offensively. And I do think that's a concern if you're a Brewers fan, but it is a reminder that as much as we want to think we live in an offensive age and that it's all about outscoring your opponent, teams that score runs don't necessarily win. Teams that pitch well almost invariably are going to win. Now, it may not be enough to get you over the hump in the end come October, but there are very few teams who pitch as well as Milwaukee does. And even if they don't score a lot of runs, they're still going to be in it and they're going to be most likely making it to October. As I said, I have a soft spot for Milwaukee and I want to know your thoughts on this. They didn't make really moves at the trade deadline, even though there are plenty of bats that they could have gotten for somewhat cheap. I thought it was almost a cruel joke to the Brewers fans seeing Joey Manessis get a sacrifice fly in the top of the 11th because he's exactly the kind of guy that they could have gotten for not too much in late July before the trade deadline. What are your thoughts on just how the Brewers handled it as it relates to what has become a very stingy trade market over the years? Yeah, I mean, if Mark Canna is your biggest uh, acquisition, that's not really saying a lot. Now, he's done a nice job and he obviously had a huge hit for them uh, Saturday night. But yeah, that's not the guy. Josh Donaldson is way past his prime. They could really use a big bopper in the middle of that lineup. And for whatever reason, they weren't willing to make that move. Now, maybe they understood that the division was in good shape and probably going to be theirs and that the the Cubs and the Reds weren't going to be able to catch him. But it, to this point, you, you know, I, I kind of put the Brewers in the category the Nationals were in come 2019. You've made the playoffs several times. You've not been able to get over that hump. This is a franchise in a town that has not won it really big in a long time. Correct me if I'm wrong, World Series once in 1982 for the Brewers. And the only World Series title was the Braves in 57. Okay, so you have motivation <laughs> and pressure to try to do this thing and win big time. And the actions that the organization has taken don't necessarily convey that like, we're all in, we're trying to pull this thing off. Now, Maybe they realistically look at it and say, for us to get there, we'd have to beat the Braves and the Dodgers, probably both of them along the way, and that's not going to happen. But then it's like, well, what are you even doing? You, you don't know how long you're going to have this pitching staff of Woodruff and Burns, the, the quality, the domination they have, a really good bullpen. I mean, they traded away Josh Hader last year and still have one of the best closers in baseball in Devin Williams. To me, you take full advantage of that. You go all in and you try to win this thing. If they don't, one of these days, this window is going to run out and people here may be left saying, what were we doing? We had our real one and only shot to finally bring a title or at least make the World Series for the first time in 40 years and they haven't been able to do it. Hey, are you a law firm partner stuck on an underperforming team while the rest of the competitors are spending big and winning big? Well, Unlike Mackenzie Gore and Kate Ruiz, you have options. You don't have to stay on your 60-win team. Nat Chat sponsor Mason Kalfis and his team specialize in placing partners and associates at medium-sized and large law firms in Washington, D.C. and across the country. Staying at a firm too long is often a recipe for being underpaid. Explore your options today with Mason Kalfis. Call Mason today at 202-486-3535. That number again, 202-486-3535. Heads up, Ted Lasso fans. Brett Goldstein, a.k.a. Roy Kent, is coming to DAR in mid-November. Head to the Game Time app for more info on how to land tickets. It's the fastest-growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. 
Get images of your seat before you buy so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. And listeners, download the GameTime app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download GameTime today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi here to tell you about another great deal being offered right now by Window Nation to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Window Nation is offering you even more. When it comes to new windows, Window Nation always gives you more, but now Window Nation is giving you even more, more. <laughs> the more windows that you buy, the more that you save up to 50% off, plus a lot more. Pay nothing for two full years. Another amazing deal on the great windows that Window Nation can provide to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Save up to 50% with the purchase of a house of windows. You know, even given what has been happening with interest and mortgage rates, Window Nation still is keeping 0% interest for two years. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And tell Window Nation that you want the great deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's your Dylan Cruz update for the final game of the season. Well, the weather won on Sunday. Rained out, game will not be made up as the season is over. Cruz wraps up his 20-game stint in Double A Harrisburg with an OPS of 596 and five doubles. Now back to the show. So big spot of the game. Left-hander out of the stretch delivers. Swing and a high fly ball right field. Thomas angling under it. The Major League leader and outfield assist makes the catch. Runner's going to try and score. The throw offline. He will score. And it's now the Nationals one of the Brewers one. RBI number 76 for Carlos Santana with the sacrifice fly. Patrick Corbin pitched well today as you heard the final score. Only gives up one run in six innings of work. Forget everything else that's happened in the past few years. And let's fast forward to spring training and to opening day. Nonetheless, Patrick Corbin's under contract for one more year, and the team is what we think and hope is on the back end of a rebuild effort and really trying to win next year at the start of this season. 
How do you think the franchise will handle Patrick Corbin? Will he be in the starting lineup simply because of how much money he makes? Or will he be in the starting rotation because he is truly one of their five best arms? Well, I think a lot of things would have to happen for him not to be in the opening day rotation, at least. Right now, you're probably looking at Mackenzie Gore, Josiah Gray, Jake Irvin. They seem to be locks, I think, based on what they've done. I don't believe Cade Cavalli is going to be there opening day. I think they're going to purposely hold him back a little bit and look at May or even June so that he can make it through the rest of the season, I think is their hope. Now, beyond that, where else are you going? You have Trevor Williams, who is a big question mark, what they're going to do. He may not even finish this year in the rotation based on some hints we got from David Martinez on Sunday. You have some other young guys in Jackson Rutledge, who's here now, Joanna Doan, who's here. You're going to get a little more glimpse of them over these final two weeks, but it's not a, a whole lot of sample to judge them on. And are you really going to go into a season with five young starters? So barring some kind of big offseason move for a, an experienced starting pitcher, which I suppose is possible, but I wouldn't think it's necessarily first and foremost on their minds right now. I think Corbin opens the year in their rotation. And maybe he's not the opening day guy again. Hopefully they can at least move off of that. And then you play this thing out. And if he is the same guy who's got a five ERA and Cavalli is healthy and the other young arms are showing that they are ready and clearly better, then you make the move. And that I would think starts with a move to the bullpen before they would cut ties altogether. But I just think because of the contract and they've been really fortunate this year in this regard, they've stayed tremendously healthy with their rotation. They've only used eight starters all year long. Is that going to happen again next year? You hope so, but you don't know. And so you would hate to give up on him and then have guys start going down in spring training or early in the season, and you no longer have that viable replacement option. So I think he starts the year in the rotation. He has a chance to give him six innings and give him a chance to win and maybe stay in there. But if there comes a point next year where they clearly have five better, then I think they make the move. But I don't think it happens over the winter. Not saying this will happen, but Barry Zito, uh, if you're unfamiliar with him, signed a nightmarish contract seven years with the San Francisco Giants. But nonetheless, in the final year of his deal in October, through a very important game in the NLCS, they beat the Cardinals on the way to a World Series. I believe it was 2012, if I have my uh, year correct. Point is, there is a path for this Corbin contract to sort of end with a bit of a smile on, on our face. Probably not, not anticipating it, but just saying, hey, nonetheless, we've gotten through the worst parts of these deals. One year to go. For all his struggles, every single fifth day he's taken the ball these past few years. It's been really remarkable, the twist in terms of this contract. And there have been some legitimately good starts in there, and this was one of them. No, it's not consistent, and yes, the bad starts have been really bad, but he always gives you length. And at least five, six, maybe even up to eight or nine times this year, he's given them a good, legitimate, solid start, better than a quality start, like two runs or less and six or seven innings or more. So he does have it in him every once in a while, just not on a regular basis. I mean, it was crazy. Until he gave up that last run in the sixth inning, his ERA was down to 498. And you say, well, big deal, 498. Well, that's the first time it had been under five in September since 2020. Shows you just where it's been here the last few years. But it does show you that as incremental as it may feel, he has been better this year than the last two. And he is kind of finishing in an okay place compared to where he's been the last few years. Bullpen pitched well. Five innings of, uh, of shutout work. The final two innings of this game, Robert Garcia was on the mound 
Decent number so far for a guy that the Nats picked up midseason off waivers. Bounce around a few teams. Where does he fit into the team's uh, plans after this season? They like him a lot, and he's got good stuff. You can see that. And he wants the ball every day. He's pitched a lot, and he's not going to be one to tell them, no, I can't go today. They have to hold him back and say, well, hang on a second. You've pitched too much. He's a big, strong left-hander. Like I said, good stuff. This was really the first time we've seen him in a spot of that kind of significance. And the situation called for it. You get two innings out of Hunter Harvey, who had not pitched in a while. You bring Finnegan back after the disaster that was Saturday night. Got into another jam, but got out of it. And now you go to extras, and it's Robert Garcia who pitches his way out of a jam in the 10th and then gets the chance to come back and do it again in the 11th. And he wound up with his first career win in the process. So I think between Garcia and Jose A. Ferrer, both of them have shown just like enough that makes you say there could be something there. They've been searching for years for a quality left-hander besides Sean Doolittle, who you know really hasn't been in the mix in quite a while himself. If just one of those two could pan out and actually be a reliable option for them in big spots and games, that's a big win. If somehow both of them are, that's even better because that's two young guys. Ferrer is homegrown. Garcia claimed off waivers, but he's still relatively young. I think he's 27 and under control for a long time. So, I mean, you saw Davey Martinez have faith in him in this game to do that. I think you're going to continue to see it. And I think they probably go into next year not going to say written in an ink that he's in the opening day bullpen, but probably a pretty good situation for him where something would have to go wrong or they have to go out and find another left-hander this winter, I think, to bump him from that spot. One big picture thought I've had as it relates to bullpens and rebuild that I've been thinking about this season is I'm curious your perspective on it, that compared to, let's say, the late 90s, early 2000s, one ripple effect is it's a tad easier in the rebuild to have a decent bullpen. I just feel like there's more arms than there used to be relievers aren't simply failed starters. It's a bit more specialized and optimized. Do you think that that little ripple effect has helped the rebuild move along to where we're at uh, at this point in mid-September? Well, it's been nice. It's been a godsend for them this year because if you had some of those bad bullpens of old years (laughs) with this team, they're losing a whole lot more games. Think in July and August in particular, how many games they won because the bullpen was locked down in those final innings. And, you know, part of you says, okay, as they try to make the lineup better, as they start to call up some of these top prospects next year, as the rotation hopefully starts to grow with these young arms developing, it's nice to, in theory, already have the makings of a good bullpen in place, a bunch of guys who are under team control for several years. The problem is you just don't know year to year what you're going to get. Al and I talk about this all the time. It's so fickle and there aren't that many relievers who are reliably good year to year, it can vary a lot. Now, I mean, you hope that Finnegan, Harvey, Weems, who's been good, Garcia, Ferrer, I mean, that's a good base to start from next year. Tanner Rainey should be back by then, and and maybe Mason Thompson figures some things out as well. I mean, that's a good number of options there. But the reality is that probably somebody who has been good for them will not be good next year, either because they're ineffective or they get hurt. So the best thing you can do is stockpile as many arms as you can and then hope from that you get four or five guys you really rely on who are good and healthy and can get you through the season. Taping this during the fourth quarter of the Commanders game and uh, Sunday night here, week two. I know some people don't love to hear football mix into their baseball talk, but nonetheless, it exists. They're real. There's an NFL team that shares the same town as the Nats. And for the first time ever this fall, Mark, we have something that I don't know if – A lot of people who don't follow football have really 
process, and that's the fact that we have the Nats exist, and we have a football team not owned by Daniel Snyder. And evidence by that, already this Thursday, there's a crossover night at Nationals Park that's going to extend also into Thursday, October 5th, when the Commanders host the Chicago Bears. They're each acknowledging each other's existence, something that really didn't happen before. What's your prediction, observation, thoughts as we reach, as we reach this new chapter of DC Sports? It's pretty clear there's a calculated effort here on both sides of the equation to have a relationship that just was not there with the previous ownership out in Ashburn. We've seen the Nationals, for most of their existence in town, have a very strong relationship with the Capitals. Now, Mark Lerner was a minority owner of the Caps, and so that is part of it. He and Ted Leonsis have always gotten along well, so that made sense. And you had two teams that were regular contenders for a while, and Ovechkin and Zimmerman kind of became friends and grew up together around the same time. You really haven't had it on the football side. Now, there have been players who've come to games over the years, and they show them on the Jumbotron, but nothing formalized to this extent. And I was actually surprised when Davey Martinez and some of the players went to training camp this year. I asked Davey about it. He said that was the first time he'd ever been out there. I mean, he's been manager for six years now, had never been out there. And he knows Ron Rivera. They go all the way back to Chicago when they both played Davey for the Cubs and Rivera for the Bears. So it's not just any old coach or team. Like this is somebody he actually has some kind of relationship with and he'd never been out to their facility before. So there's a real calculated effort there and good. That's nice to see a lot of cities have a lot more of this with their professional franchises where everybody's kind of all in together with each other. And for whatever reason, that was not the case here in DC. What will be fascinating, of course, we know who the owner of the Commanders is now for the foreseeable future. We don't know who the owner of the Nationals is for the foreseeable future. I do believe it's going to be Mark Lerner for a while longer, at least another year or so. The situation hasn't changed. I think a lot of things would have to change for him to sell the team. And I don't see the signs that that is going to be happening anytime soon. But eventually somebody else takes over, whoever that person may be. Do they have the same feelings? Do they want to have the same relationship. I think also, and we've kind of alluded to this as well, by default, the Lerner family, both by winning a World Series and by the fact that they were not Dan Snyder, were thought of pretty highly, I think, among most casual fans in the area. They certainly weren't thought of as the worst owners in town that went to the football team. Well, now you've got an owner who's going all out of his way to appease everyone there. We'll see how things go with the Caps and the Wizards and Ted Leonsis. But I think there's a little more pressure now on the Lerner family and a little more spotlight on them to pull off the rebuild, to invest in this team again if they are going to continue to own them. And if not, to get moving and sell this team so that somebody else can try to get them back to prominence. I will be fascinated to see the public reaction the next couple of years if they still own the team to the Lerner family and their practices. Fans love to have some owner to complain about right? That's always going to be the case no matter what it is. If you can't complain about the football owner anymore, where are your sights set? It's either on Leonsis or it's going to be on the learners. I definitely agree with you. And I wonder if the learners know that as well. And with that, am I correct in that Ted Lerner was on the short list of bidders when Jack Kent Cook put the football team up in the mid-90s? You are correct. I wasn't around in town at that point, but I've heard the stories that he was at least interested in. I don't know how close it ever came to fruition. But yeah, Ted Lerner was for a long time interested in buying a local sports franchise. It could have been the football team and it uh, wound up becoming the baseball team instead. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it.
I hope you enjoy your rest of your trip in Milwaukee. Safe travels. One final homestand left for the Nationals. They have three against the White Sox beginning Monday, then four against the NL East champion Atlanta Braves. You know the usual closing drill from Al. You've heard it every single day. I'll let his words speak for himself here as we wrap up. Nats again, winners 2-1 to one in Milwaukee, and we continue the stretch of 17 games in 17 days. Nats, White Sox, Monday evening. For Mark, for Al, for myself, for the listeners, appreciate you listening. We'll talk to you soon, everyone. We're definitely going to look for, for more arms because we, you know, we need depth, uh, you know, as, as we all know, and I talk about it a lot. I'm proud of these guys. These guys taking the, took the ball every five days to go through a season with only, you know, eight starters right now. That's pretty impressive, you know, and, and that's a testament to, to our staff, you know, pitching staff, uh, medical staff, strength and goodness guys keep these guys ready to go. But they did well, but we definitely want to add, add some, more, uh, some more pitching depth for next year. The pitch. Swing and a fly ball to left. This should do it. Back goes Muziati. Makes the catch. Tagging at third is Martin. The throw. Not in time. Red Wings win it. In 13 innings. And they mob Darren Baker at first base after he has the sacrifice fly to win it.